everybody. Welcome to Views on View. Today on our panel, we have Chris Fritz, who is one、Hi. of the core team members of View. Should I redo that? Even though you find it laughable. No, no, this is fine. This is good. <laughs> you just interjected me. Well, normally people say hi. It's okay. This is fine. Hey, folks! I just want to let you know quickly about Netlify. Netlify is a really cool system for hosting what are traditionally known as static sites. However, the real benefit that I've been finding is that I don't have to mess with a backend. I can just set things up. I build the website out. I've been using a system called Eleventy.js, and you just deploy it. And then anything that you have that you want to do, you can do on the front end. So if you want to pull in some kind of database with Firebase or something else, if you want to collect form data, Netlify provides all kinds of services that make it easy to do all that stuff. If you're trying to do serverless, they have a really, really neat serverless setup that will allow you to deploy your websites without having to deploy a backend, and it'll do some of the work for you. I just, I just love it. So, if you're looking for a way that you can actually deploy a website that only has front-end technology in it, gives you all the tools that you typically need for the backend without having to actually program the backend, then give them a try. Go check them out at Netlify.com. We're doing a great episode so far. Let's let's move on. Let's let's get started. Yeah, let's do. So, it. what are we talking about today? So we decided since we are、uh, without a guest today, it's just Chris and I. It's the Chris and Divya show. We're going to talk about input math. The Chris and Divya show. Yes. Yeah, we need music for that. I just provided music. Oh, I thought that was just one example of music. I thought I thought that I thought that was good for the final. Yeah, I mean,、right. it's okay. I mean, we can workshop it later. But、yeah. anyway, so we wanted to talk about input masks. Yes. So first, like, what is an input mask? Is this like something you wear to? Like、uh, a party or something like that. A masquerade. I mean, I'm sure you, you could figure something out, but the idea of an input mask is that it works with inputs. So if you have a form element,、uh, you've definitely come across this if you've worked with, if you filled out a form online. So you have this input, and then within it, you might fill in credit card information, for example. And when you fill the information out, it formats it so it looks like a credit card number. With like spaces between every four yeah, numbers,、so、it gives you spaces between four numbers, and it's same with like phone numbers as well. So you have the spacing for if you're a U.S. based number, you have the area code followed by three digits and four digits, and so it's the idea of masking the content of your input so it looks、um, like the actual content it represents, and so it's、okay. a little bit more readable and understandable than just having a string of numbers. And so, with a phone number, it'd be like automatically adding the parentheses、yes. and maybe like a a dash or something dash. like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Depending on the input mask,、um, I've seen some where they just give you the appropriate spacing. I've seen those where there is the parentheses added.、Um, it usually depends on the library or the post, the author that is creating this input mask. But essentially, the idea is that you're making the input readable to the user. So they don't have to keep checking back on like, oh, did I fill this out correctly? Because to just parse the information.、Mm, so they like for a phone number, for example, they can easily see that they have the right amount of numbers. Exactly.、And、yeah. Same for a credit card. Like they didn't miss one. Yeah. Exactly. And so you don't have to do the counting. You don't have to do that. And then you're like behind the scenes, your your machine still knows, or like the browser still knows that those numbers exist without the formatting, because browsers don't need that,、um, but humans、mm. do. So、yeah. it's kind of normalized that, that like the the input is normalized client side. Yes, exactly. Cool. So why would you want to do this? 
the main reason to do it is just purely for usability, like we were talking about earlier, just because from a user's perspective, filling out a form isn't always fun. It's kind of boring. And you want to make the form filling process as quick and efficient as possible. So if someone was checking out, you want to make sure their checkout process is as quick and efficient. You get all of the details that you need accurately and efficiently as possible. And so with input masking, you can easily do that because all you need is maybe an address. You can format that address properly. Um, mm. You might need um, like a phone number, maybe. You might need a credit card information and so on. And so you need those pieces. And if you have the input masking to help the user parse that quickly, um, then they can efficiently check out quickly. And so specifically for checkout processes, there is a conversion to, there's like a revenue conversion, right? Because if someone checks out, it means money gets transferred and so on. So there is a benefit from that perspective. In other cases, it might not exactly be a revenue specific benefit, but uh, there can be times where let's say you're trying to have a user sign up to your service and you want them to sign up for a service. I've come across um, sign up flows where I just mm -hmm. get frustrated with the process because either the form input looks kind of weird and wacky and I don't know what I'm doing. And then sometimes the error, um, the, the form validation doesn't work. And so I just end up not signing up for the thing and not completing the process altogether. Okay. So I think the idea of form inputs is just to help with usability, with the understanding of the benefit of people completing the forms at the end. So it gives you kind of like on the fly visual self-validation, like yeah. the users are looking at this to, exactly. to see like, okay, is, does this look right? Yeah, yeah. Because commonly when you fill something out, like I've come across it where I would fill out, let's say for the US, that's not usually a problem. But if I were using a service that was international, you sometimes have to add like the country code and I'm not used to adding that. And so I would just use like US number or whatever. And then if there was form validation, I would see clearly that the number of that the number of numbers or the quantity of numbers doesn't accurately match what was expected. So I know that I have to add the country code in just because of how it looks. Rather than like submitting the form and then there'll be like error, phone number invalid, and I wouldn't know why. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I feel like I have a lot more confidence with input masks because yeah. Yeah, like you talked about with a country code. Like sometimes I'm even wondering, like, do I add a country code or am I going to break something in a database somewhere and then I'll never yeah, get exactly. a Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and usually with country codes also, symbols might come in. So yeah, you, and do, do I add a plus? You add or, a plus yeah. You're not. And so, yeah, that's always something with, with an input mask, it takes away that question altogether. So the user knows exactly what to input without guessing. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good point. So yeah. in terms of like doing this kind of thing in Vue, like you've, you've done this kind of thing in Vue, right? Yes. I and have. like, how did you do it? Like what kind of features did you use? Like what do people have to know? So there's different ways that you can do it. Um, you can use, I, I was talking to Sarah Drasner like last year about this, um, but you can use filters using Vue. Uh, I don't think that's a recommended thing to do. <laughs> But one other way that I've done it is using computed properties. So you can easily grab like the data value and then change it so that the user sees a specific thing versus like what the data property actually is. You capture the original number and then you still reflect like a formatted number to the user. So you, you have almost like the, the way I've done it before is you have two properties. You have like an original and then you have a formatted. 
And so when you need to send it to an API, you can use the original, which is unformatted. And what you show the user is the formatted number. And you can do that um, switching on the fly as users type in. So you, you would just capture that at, like at input. Like whenever a new input is added in, you would just, ha- you would just make change. Mm. So, and how do, you, how do you make it so that like in an, in an input, like there's not a way, like an HTML input I'm thinking about, that there's not a way to have like a parenthesis show up, but it's not really part of it. Yeah. How do we do that part? The idea of the parentheses. Um, so yeah, yeah, like for a phone number and stuff. Like, how do you have stuff that shows up in the input but isn't provided by the user and can't be edited by the user? Usually, it depends on the. You have to capture the type of input, right? So if it is, um, let's say, if someone were using your library that you created for input masking, um, you would have to specify like what kind of type, like data type, it is. So if it's a credit card number, in this case, it's a phone number. So if it's a phone number, there's like a different function that you use where you add that. You use like some kind of regex on the back end, not really back end, but you know, behind the scenes. Um, you use a regex where you're grabbing the first three numbers and then adding that parentheses. So as a user types, it grabs the first three as parentheses and then so on. So it's basically making like a regular input, but automatically changing the stuff that users are adding? Yeah, that's what I've done in the past where... That it is included in the input itself, or you see it as you're typing, um, mm-hmm. but the user isn't inputting that value itself. And so the idea is that the parentheses exist and you see it in the input, but because you capture the original value based on what they type. So you can capture key events. So um, whenever a user types a specific number, you just capture those events and then you save them as because they're specific numbers. And then you would be able to have like the idea of what the original input is versus the formatted. I feel like this is very fuzzy. <laughs> like I want to show like actual code to explain what I mean. We can drop some, you have some code and I think you have a, a talk on, on forms in general too that- um, Yes, I do, yeah. That I think would be good to drop in the show notes. Yes, we can definitely do that. Yeah, without, without diving into really specific code and into- sort of mirror what you've said a little bit. It, it sounds like, like one way of doing it is having an input and, you know, the computed property, you know, if there are like a certain number of digits can automatically like add parentheses yep. to the value of the input. Yeah. Like for the user. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so how do you manage like, like where a user's cursor is and stuff like that? Yeah, that one is a hard one. I don't know if I've specifically solved that. So So I'm going to like deviate from that question a little bit because it's slightly related. But one thing that I found when I did input masking in the past is the position of cursor based on whether or not a user arrow key. So, you know, sometimes you command arrow to like the end or the front of an input, which is nice because then you can quickly just navigate to be like, oh, I missed the number or whatever. Capturing that is really difficult (laughs) because you, you almost need to check I think there's a browser way where you can check where exactly a cursor is. And I forget exactly how to do that. Yeah, I think it's like with git selection or something like that. Yeah, it was like git selection and then it gives you an index. And then you can figure out if it's like where exactly it is and then move the cursor appropriately. Yeah, I don't Um, remember exactly what that is, but we'll we'll drop that API in the show notes. Yeah, but the thing is when you manipulate that, it it, it can be fuzzy. It can be, it can give you results that are unexpected. 
So I've done like cursor manipulation and sometimes it just jumps the number. So if I was like, oh, I'm typing in a number, it just jumps the cursor either to the front. Like for instance, one issue I had was that I would type in, let's say a phone number. And so you're typing in a phone number and then it automatically jumps the cursor after you type in the first three to the front of the input because I changed the input on the fly. Which is why sometimes you'll want to like change the input. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or like, or ch- change where the cursor is in the input. Change where the cursor is. Yeah. Because otherwise, if you automatically like switch the input or whatever, or mask the the current input with a different input, the browser is like, oh, there is no input, and then it pushes it to the front. Um, so, from a view perspective, like, where would we have that code? The code that like changes the cursor based on where the cursor currently is and what the new value versus the old value of the input is? I mean, you can do it in different ways. Like you can do it in a method. Like if you were doing, if you are listening to specific input key events, then it would just be triggered by a method. So whenever someone like types a thing, then the method gets triggered each time. And you want that to happen because you want that update to happen on the fly. Um, Another way you could do it is also you could create some kind of a watcher. So if you're like, oh, I have this data property like called formatted. And anytime I make updates to it, I want something else to happen. You can create a watcher for that specific property so that it adds additional logic without adding clunk to the rest of your like formatting code, for instance, because you want to create that differentiation of where things are happening. Um, When I worked on input masking... So that would be a watcher on the computed property? It'll be a watcher... Or a watcher on what the user has... No, it's what the user is input. So like, it's not really a computer. So it's it's two different ways of dealing with it. So mm-hmm. like, if you're not using computer properties and you're just using a data property, like pure, like whatever data, and then you can create a watcher on that data property and then update that specific thing, which like, it can cause like conflicts, just like weird things to happen. Because again, you're like making changes to the thing you're changing, if that makes sense. Because you're Making changes in. to the thing you're changing. So you're saying like if you're watching something and the watcher changes the thing that you're watching? Yes. Then it, like you could end up in an infinite loop. Yeah, you could end up just like, yeah. One disadvantage of the, the watcher approach, like if the watcher yeah. is actually changing, if you're watching the computed property or the, you know, what the user has actually input rather than what's showing up. Yeah. You know, if you modify either of those, then you'll end up in an infinite loop. That's one caveat with a, with a watcher versus... Yes. Uh, you know, just having a method in a callback on a, like an input listener, for example. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And the input listener, I think the the disadvantage of that one is it wouldn't have access to the old value, right? Yes, correct. Um, Unless you saved it somehow. Actually, no, it would have access to the old value. Well, if you do like, I mean, you'd have to query whatever is within that input. Element. Yeah, so you'd, you'd check like the, the event target value and that would be yeah. the new value and it wouldn't be in your, in your data yet or in yeah. your computer. So interestingly, you decide what to do with it. Yeah. there's a lot of like edge cases when you're dealing with input elements, which is just like an issue with inputs on the web in general, which is that do you, and this is a decision that you have to make when you're doing input masking. For instance, like do you want to capture paste events? So if someone were copying pasting a password, for example, like, how do you handle <laughs> formatting that? Or how do you handle um, how exactly, what exactly will happen? Or how do you validate that paste data? So let's say your input 
only accepts numbers. So it's like a phone number and it only should accept numbers because a phone number doesn't have letters theoretically. And one way of doing that is through validation. So you're always checking whenever a user is typing that that key code is not a it's not an alphabet or a letter, it is a number and is also not equally not a symbol. And that can be challenging in and of itself because you're checking character codes or key codes each time a user types, but it is additionally difficult when you're doing when you're dealing with paste data because when someone does a paste that is not captured through input. And so you have to create like a different input event that grabs the data that was pasted and then checks whether it's an, it's alphabetized or not and then whatever. Oof, can we drop a link in the show notes to uh, like a, yeah. a blog or something that explores those issues? Yes, we can. I don't have a, I don't, I'll have to find one because I, I had this issue and, and like was stuck in my own infinite loop of trying to figure out what exactly to do with this use case. There's something that I've looked up at one time. I'll, I'll see if I can find it. Okay. The other thing alongside like this weird validation thing, which is kind of this part of input masking is validation, is handling key press events. So we keep talking about key press events. The funny thing is that delete is a weird, like has a really weird character code that isn't, I think when I dealt with it, I need to look at the exact code. But when I was trying to deal with hand, with grabbing delete or enter, I wasn't able to grab it using just traditional input. I needed to like actually get, use key press. And then so are we talking like Mac OS delete or like Linux Windows delete key? Well, Mac OS delete and Windows, yes. Because Mac OS delete is basically backspace. Yeah, it's backspace. Yeah, so, yeah. Whereas delete on a window on Windows and Linux key, like or like on like basically non Mac OS keyboards. Yeah. Or non Mac keyboards, uh, that deletes the character in front. So. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, there's that issue that I had to also that you have to also consider, and I I can I'll drop in the show notes this terrible code that I wrote for it. Uh, Sounds good. But it was just like the idea of um, essentially when I was doing um, input masking, I had to format and then unformat what I was doing. And the reason to do that is like every time I format something and I need to get the raw value, I would unformat it to get the raw value. So I didn't, I didn't have two data attributes. I have one and then I would just format and unformat it as I need. Mm. Um, so anytime I present, for example, I unformat everything I've done. And then send it, which is not perfect. Um, but yeah, there's like some terrible regex things as well, which which is terrible. Because specifically, what um, the input mask I was dealing with had to do with currency conversion, because that's a difficult thing to handle based on types of currency. So decimal places in currency are not standardized across different ex- currencies. So in the US, it's like you use a point. In Europe, you use a comma. And um, some countries, yeah. And some country, and some other countries. In India... Like, like Germany. Like Germany, yeah. Germany and I think Spain does the same thing. Mm-hmm. And in India, there's a very specific type of... It's usually like zero, zero or whatever. And also thousands, uh, you know, three... Every three um, denominations, like it's just thousand denominations. But Indian currency has a weird like denomination system, which, which to me doesn't make any sense. Um, uh-huh. And so I had to write a separate use case for that because like 
anytime you wanted to do, I think that's a general problem on the web. Like I've seen so many different libraries to do uh, currency conversion, not specifically yeah. a conversion, but the input masking for currency. I think the only global problem that's more of a headache than currencies is maybe time zones. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, time zones is rough too. Um, oh, I hate time it's, zones. It's, it's funny <laughs> you brought that up because I've recently, this is totally a side note, but I've been dealing with um, writing my own JSON web tokens just as an exercise to be like writing a JSON web token and then setting it in a cookie, specifically for role-based authentication on Netlify or role-based redirects on Netlify. And the time zone for JWT the expiry needs to be in UTC. Mm-hmm. For some reason, on Netlify, it gives me ISO. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I keep getting an error. So I have to met, like sucker punch this date into doing exactly what I need it to do. But yeah. Got it. To convert it. To convert it. Yeah, you have to like two string, then new date, and then work. Stay <laughs> you have to trick it somehow. Yeah, it's weird. Like I think... This is something I need to explore further. But in Netlify, for some reason, I found that if you try to use a date, it just automatically converts it to ISO. ISO. Okay. So even if I do a new date, I'm like, this is a const. It should never change. <laughs> it's a new date. And then I console log it to ISO. I'm like, all right, this is strange. And it, it might be due to just certain things that are happening that I don't know the, the build bots are doing. Yeah. I work at Netlify, but I'm no expert. Got it. So another strategy that I've seen sometimes and, and, and use myself is uh, having like a, a hidden input and then having users like not type into the input directly. Instead, they're, they're typing into something else that is uh, maybe like content editable. Oh, yes. So that like you can have full control over it and yeah. you know, add some characters like in between their characters. Yeah, uh, which you can't do in a normal input if you don't want them to be able to edit it, and sometimes if you don't want to mess with their cursor. Yeah. So this way, like you don't have to deal with some of those cursor edge cases. Mm-hmm. Have you have you used this strategy at all? Um, I, let me see. Have I? I don't think I have content editable. I have not. But that's actually really that's that's an interesting point that will probably remove a lot of issues with events not doing exactly what you think they are doing and so on. I mean, it does introduce some of its own issues as well because I mean, inputs are made for inputting things uh, yeah. and they, they work generally very well for that. And, you know, reinventing some of that with content editable, you know, you, you end up having to, to learn how to do some things that you already knew how to do with inputs over again. Yeah, because content editable is just like you can use a P or a div or a span or whatever. So there yeah. isn't like the inbuilt event handlers that input gives you out of the box. Yeah, gosh, I don't remember. It's been a while since I've solved this specific problem, but I remember there was some new stuff I had to learn. Um, and we'll, we'll drop a link to the show notes. I mean, we're not going to go into too much detail in this anyway, because uh, we, yeah. we, we don't want to get stuck in the weeds and have you try to visualize code in your brain while you're listening to this in the car and trying to like weave through traffic. And so... That's one option. And uh, yeah, it introduces some of its own complexity, but gets around a lot of the limitations of inputs or text areas. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Actually, like while we're here, I'd love to talk about some of some more of our like favorite form tricks. Do, do you mind yeah. if we share yeah. some of those? Yeah, we, we can. Gosh, one that I just that. thought of that I, I really like is uh, auto sizing uh, text areas. Oh, yes. That is really nice. So they start out as just like one or two rows. 
And then they actually expand as the user types more. So they don't have to like have like three, three rows and then scroll to see the huge message that they've typed. Mm-hmm. And, and you probably have seen a lot of examples of this. I, I'm talking to the, the user here. I know you have Divya. Like uh, on, on Facebook, they have some of this. Like on GitHub, they have some of this. You know, so that you, you start typing something and it, it expands at least to a certain extent and sometimes, you know, almost indefinitely as you keep typing. Yeah. Yeah, obviously it can, it can expand beyond the, the height of the screen. Well, actually it could, but uh, sometimes you don't want to because you have like other things that you want to always be present on the page. Yeah. Is it like text boxes that you can also use that has the draggable thing? So anytime you type into it, you can just make the input bigger. I mean, that's not exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I'm talking about like there's a, an NPM library that I often use for this that works well with Vue. I'm just going to Google NPM auto size because that's what I usually do when I need it. I think it is just called auto size. Yep. Auto size is a small standalone script to automatically adjust yeah. text area to fit text. And we'll drop that in the show notes. Cool. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. What are some more of your favorite, like, form hacks for like more usable forms and you know just things that that improve the experience quite a bit. Do you have like libraries or tricks, tools that you use and like pretty much every single app that has forms? Yeah, I think I usually like to um, notify. So there have been times where I've worked on large forms, like really large and long paginated forms. And the problem with those kinds of forms is that um, going back to what we talked about at the beginning, just the idea of people finishing them because they're very long. Um, Surveys is one example when someone has to go through multiple pages. And so the idea of like having things happen as a person fills out a form, because when I'm filling out a form, my biggest worry is that I'll accidentally close the tab and like all of my data wouldn't be saved. And, And then I have to restart from the beginning. And so oh, yeah. one, one thing like, that I like to I've do... I've done that before where I've like accidentally closed a tab and be like, yeah. oh no, I put in so much stuff. And sometimes like if it's a conference proposal, like yeah, I might've like typed in my abstract and that's the only place because I was just like thinking of it as I, yeah. as I went. Yeah. And, and so, I lost it. I have to rewrite it. Yeah. So I've seen places where you can save things to local storage or to like a specific user session. And mm. so as someone is typing, you can save that data locally. And so if they were to close their tab, the data is saved. And when they come back, that's like a behind the scenes trick, which yeah. is really nice, but you can also make it more explicit. So as you're typing, as a user is filling out a form, you can give them feedback to be like, oh, this is your like this much done or like a progress bar or to say like to show that things are being saved as you're typing rather than 
mm. having them worry that they have to do it within a specific amount of time or if yeah they otherwise they, they get anxious yeah especially like if you don't yeah. have a save button yeah like having some kind of indicator that things are saved automatically is really helpful otherwise like i will hunt for that save button because i'm so afraid of losing yeah i just I- come i just command s by default always which is really <laughs> irritating which usually saves the page yeah, yeah it saves the whole web page it's like do you want to save this web page i'm like no that's not what i meant i just wanted to like yeah it's interesting because uh, I use paper, Dropbox's paper a lot. And it's, it's not a form. It's just a giant Dropbox, like a giant document that you can edit. And I command save on that all the time. But it's a web page, so you're not saving. But the nice thing about that is that when you do a command save, they give you a notification saying like, hey, all of your data is automatically saved. You don't have to, do, you don't have to save it explicitly. And so that feedback is always, I mean, I still, I still hit command S and save. Yeah, because you don't um, want to lose. Because I don't want to lose, especially if I'm writing, if I'm writing something um, and I'm putting a lot of thought into something, I don't want that to just disappear into the ether. So, um, but it's a nice, it's a really nice feedback loop when the form or the app that you're using tells you that, hey, don't worry about it. Your data is being saved. And I like the save and exit the best out of most forms. So TurboTax does it. And um, for people who are not American or who don't reside in America, uh, TurboTax is just tax preparation software that a lot of Americans use to complete their taxes. And taxes are generally terrible and dreadful and nobody looks forward to that time unless you're an accountant or a CPA or <laughs> whatever, or if you enjoy that. But the process of it is is simplified with TurboTax. So you, have, you still have to go through those different steps of filling out your forms, but TurboTax gives you that pat on the back as you're filling things out. It's like, hey, don't worry about it. Everything is going fine. We're saving things. Um, and it has this special button, which I love called save and exit. So you can exit an application and save the data. And I've seen not just TurboTax do this, but a couple of other forms do this where if you get tired or if you have to move on to a different task and you can't finish a form, you can always save and exit. And so it saves it to your specific user profile or session and you can always just return to it later, which is nice. Yeah, that is nice. I I really like those those touches. And I I think even in normal like comment boxes, like I I find that really helpful when I notice it happens. Like on on GitHub, if you type something in and then you refresh the page, like you're... Yeah, it, it'll still be there. So you won't have lost like that, that whole thing that you've, you've written. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty nice. And I, they, they probably save that in local storage. Yeah, likely. And then, they, and then when you submit, they just clear it out. Yeah. Which is cool. Um, the other thing that so, I use on forms, I guess another trick is uh, help text. And mm. it, it feels very stodgy because people don't really like a lot of information if you already have a lot of information on a page. But help text is hidden information. And so it only shows users that if they click on it or if they hover on it. And it's just additional context to a specific field that you're filling in. So there was a time where I was working on real estate software. And I'm not a real estate expert, so I don't know most terminology. There's a lot of terminology around real estate. And so one of them is like... Yeah, 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 like... Uh, specifically, there's one called pro forma, and I, if you ask me to explain what that means, I, I still have difficulty. But 
we had a specific field for proforma for proforma information and a lot of users might not know what that is and so we yeah, have they're also called things. reverse market rates i think did you just google that no no i just made it up <laughs> okay um <laughs> and, and now they are sometimes called that because i just called it that yeah so it's, it's a statement that makes itself true there you go i feel like if you say something with uh with certainty people believe you so you specifically gonna... or just <laughs> no, anyone in, general, in general in general no you're not special chris it's just in general. I, I like to think i'm, I'm special <laughs> i don't know I, I like to think i'm i'm especially good at speaking confidently <laughs> there you go i mean that's that's the key but anyway yeah. anyway to come back to the point specific things might not make sense to people because there's always language that doesn't translate well if you are not an english speaker or if you're not in that specific industry, you might not know the terminology. And so um, help text is really useful for giving users feedback as to what exactly they're filling in. It's kind of like having a personal assistant, the person you can nudge being like, hey, what, what do mm -hmm. I put in this field? Um, and it's out of the box, it's there. And so as mm -hmm. someone's filling in, they're like, hmm, what does this mean? And then they can click on the help text and then it shows you this is what you do, or this is an example of what this is. And you've, you might have come across this, especially with CVV numbers with credit cards. So when you're filling in your credit card information, CVV is the number that's on the back of your card. Usually on, it's like on a strip. Yeah, it's like three um, characters. And it's three in. characters. Yeah, and so there are certain... Like one, two, three, which is, which is definitely not my <laughs> CVV. Not three, two, one. Um, and so there are lots of checkout forms uh, where when they have the CVV input box, there's a in, there's like a little I, which is usually denoted for help text. And when you click on it, it shows you an image. Some of them show you images. Some of them just say, hey, it's a three-digit three digit code on the back of your credit card. Some of them actually show a credit card and they're like, this is where it is. I've seen similar for like account and routing numbers for banks because um, most people don't have access to that information on hand. They're like, where on earth do I find this number? And mm -hmm. it's usually on your checks. Um, and they'll circle like, this is where your account number is. And this is where your writing number is. So if you pull out your checkbook, you can know exactly where that is. Um, yeah, that's really, that's really helpful for, I, I remember when I was learning to be an adult, I found that those kinds of things, those kinds of touches really useful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, how does this whole money thing work? Yeah. <laughs> so it's people not, are going to give me money and then I keep it, they keep, the bank keeps it. <laughs> someone needs to create an illustrated guide to adulting. Like all the different things you need to do, specifically all, and it'll mostly Gosh, be finance oriented. Because if, if, someone, if someone created that, like I feel like Rachel Neighbors would be the best person in the world oh to create God. that resource. Yeah. There you go. Uh, Collaboration. If you, don't, if you don't know Rachel Neighbors, uh, you should check out her her talk at ViewConf last year. Uh, really, really good. Really one of the favorites of the conference. She also um, does view animation, and she she yeah. does so much cool stuff. Yeah. She does um she does trainings as well. So mm -hmm. um, I just bought a course of hers, which is like cartooning for developers or something. I forget what it's called. But it's the idea of like how do you as developers, you have a lot of technical knowledge and you might want to translate that and cartooning is one really great way of doing that. Or like, where's this where's this course? Has it started already? Uh, no, it's just a it's or not it a like an online thing? it's just an online thing. So I it's not live? Add the link. Yeah, it's not live. So I bought it and I have it and I'm just like going through it 
slowly. Definitely so, drop that in the show notes because that sounds interesting to me. Yeah, it's super cool. I think she uses the, the same software that Webpack does for teaching their courses. I forget what it's called. But, but anyway, uh, back, to, back to these forms. Yes, practical cartooning for technical folk. That is what it's called. Oh, okay. Very nice. So but before, before I uh, sidetracked you, you were talking about how it's really helpful when they put like a help text, little, little help text or images. Yeah. And I've, I've even seen like credit card forms sometimes that actually look like a credit card. Oh yes. I've seen those. Yeah. I find those just like cool, but and, not and, super And as helpful. you're typing it in, they'll like put in the logo of your credit card. So when they detect oh, yeah. it, this is a visa. I've seen that. I've seen, I've also seen that. Yeah. So one of the other things that I'm, I'm curious about, you talked briefly about multi-page forms before. Yeah. You know, so sometimes there's like a lot of information that people want to put in. And in my experience, if you ask people to fill out like 30 fields, what will happen is that they just won't. Yeah. <laughs> especially in certain contexts, like depending on the context, like if it's, especially if it's like a sign-in form, the sign-in form with, with 30 fields, unless they are highly, highly motivated to sign up for your site, yeah. uh, they're just going to bail because yep. people, people don't want to take that kind of time. Yeah, definitely. And so sometimes it's useful to only show people like a few fields at a time. First, I mean, if yeah. you have 30 fields, that's probably a bit too much, but like often it's useful to show people maybe like three different fields at a time and they can go to like the next stage. And, and sometimes that has much better success at getting people to like stay and fill out the form. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll notice that like a lot of surveys do this. Most surveys don't have like everything all on one page. They'll, they'll spread things out between pages so that mm -hmm. like, and you can submit a little bit by little bit. Yeah. I think the idea is just grouping content. So you're grouping related pieces of content together. So you're like, this is everything related to, if it's a survey, this is everything related to your personal information or like your mm -hmm demographic information and then this is specific to like your views on a specific topic whatever that may be but technically speaking like how do you make that work let's say you have an endpoint like on your api yeah. to submit all of this information together yeah and but you can't like you can't have a form element that has like oh i see pages like yeah because it's like i see what you like, mean yeah i know what you mean like even if it's client side, if you're just swapping out the elements, like you're losing that information, right? So how do you maintain it? Yeah, that's, that's always a hard part. So what I've done, I mean, this is definitely not answering your question at all, but in the oh, past, well, thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> when, in the past when I've had multi-page forms, um, we just had endpoints that we would hit every time a user like moves to the next page. So it saves some of their information? Yeah, because otherwise it's like, I mean, you could theoretically try to save it to like a VUX store or um, to like local storage of some form. Got it. And then like grabbing all of those. So what I've, what I've done it, and what I have played around with is having like a giant form data attribute, which is an object. And then within that, you have all of the various associated data properties within that form. And so all of them are null. And then as a user submits information in their form, you're just saving it and it's saved to like a VUX store or whatever. And then yeah. when... And that that totally does answer my question, actually. Yeah. So like when yeah, someone so, submits, then you just send the whole form thing down. So in the first part of the form, like let's say you're not doing it in VUX. In the first part of the solution, you mentioned 
like for the first section, you do a create. Yeah. And then in every other section, you do an update. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. And after it's already been created. So like if this thing actually exists already, like if it already has an ID, then in the first part, you do an update too. Mm-hmm. Like if people are going back to that section. Yes, correct. Okay. So that makes sense. So that's one way to solve it, you know, without having to like actually make sure that these things are on the same page or, you know, yeah. uh, you know, keeping them within the same form element and trying to submit it all at once. Let's say for some reason, and I, I've come across this before, you do have to submit it all at once. And there are going to be problems if you don't, because, you know, maybe there are validations that require like having all the information together. Yeah. Like server-side validations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's hard because in a sense, like you would want to do client side validation to prevent for that. So you're like, okay, the server expects this information. And so you can have um, client side validation that sits in the middle. So as the user is typing, you're doing that validation to make sure that it matches what the server expects. And so that way, when you submit the form in bulk, whatever the server gets is what it expects. And so it, it hits that form validation on the server side, but then you get fewer errors. Are you saying like one limitation of this is like, if you submit it all at once, you'll get validations for like what went wrong, like server yeah. side validation. Yeah, so that, like that's o- only after they've submitted everything and they can't yeah. even see all the fields at that time, like in their yeah. view. Yeah, so that it tends to be, I mean, that's also one reason why people get frustrated when they fill out forms, when people only do server side validation, because... If you only do server-side validation, then users can input like th- can add and update thir- thirty fields, and then they'll only be up- notified of like the fields that didn't work when they submit, which could be everything. And yeah. at that point, they wouldn't want to go back and fill out those thirty forms or, or update those thirty forms again. So in these cases, yeah. it could be important to have um, like client-side validations wherever possible. It also goes back to my point on why sending a form in bulk is problematic because there are some, there are some things, for example, if you wanted to create a, a new user, like a new username, and you have to check the server to make sure that like no one else has used that specific username. Yeah. Uh, but you don't want to know that at the end. <laughs> like you want yeah. to know that up front. And so you so, could have an endpoint that just like checks to see if this username is exactly. available. Yeah, exactly. So you can do specific validation. So as a user is typing in, you're checking certain fields that need access to the database yeah. to be validated. And that doesn't need to be everything, of course. But of course, it, doing, doing it this way prevents further errors down the line or for like more frustration and f- fewer errors for the user because... I'm more likely to update a field if the field is read while I'm typing it rather yeah. than if I already finished and moved on because your context has switched at that point. I also ran into a case where there was like a, a very specific deadline for when we wanted to release this like feature and it was a sign-up feature. And they, they definitely wanted to have this like multi-step sign-up process. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't do any validations like what you just described, which like w- would have solved the problem, you know, to check to see if this email address has been used or this username is available, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, we'd really just find out at the end. And so what we did is we, we had the different groups show up with, um, with a V show. Yeah. And so we, 
we had things appear and disappear with Visho, uh, you know, and, and transition through that. And then after they'd submitted it and we got validations back, we showed them all the fields together with validation errors, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in one big page. So, and that was the edit page. So like editing the page and fixing validation errors is all in, is all consolidated on one page, but, yeah. you know, getting people to fill out that information initially mm-hmm. is much easier right. because, uh, you know, they're only exposed to so much information at a time and they're not overloaded. Yeah, that makes sense. So at the end, it's like, it just batches all of the things that need to be updated, essentially. And in this case, it wasn't an option to, you know, have those endpoints because that was a separate team. Yeah. And that team was like, oh yeah, they could probably get, you know, get back and create that for us in two weeks. And it's yeah. like, oh, wow. It's like, uh, and sometimes you're using APIs that you don't even control. Yes, exactly. Um, it's always nice. Uh, when I was working on the multi-page form that I was mentioning, I was working alongside literally next to the API team. <laughs> Um, and so it was easy for me to just nudge them on the shoulder asking for new endpoints because we worked very closely. And so for me, yeah. I was like, hey, from a user perspective, this would make more sense. And then they would be able to spin up an endpoint and I would be able to use it within, within the hour. Um, Th- that is nice. Is a, yeah, which is a luxury that not all teams have. Yeah. And this is, at least for a lot of apps, this isn't feasible for, for every app, um, you know, before people jump down my throat. But... In a lot of cases, I like to have uh, mono repos where the same people can, you know, update backend code and front end code. Yeah. Uh, so that, like, when they need an endpoint like this, you know, they can create it, like, in the same, you know, PR if not the same commit. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it comes from the same person rather than having to coordinate between multiple people, especially when it's something simple. Yeah. Or it's like we just we just need this one endpoint to. Tell us whether or not this username is available. To get around some of this stuff, I've also seen hacks sometimes where users will actually like visit their website and check to see if a certain user profile exists or if it 404s. <laughs> and just yeah. checking the head and knowing from that whether the username is available. Uh, I, would, I would try to avoid hacks like yeah, that, that whenever possible. But sometimes, I mean, come on, as web developers, especially like, you know, I've worked on tons and tons and tons of different projects for tons of different companies. You do run into cases like this where it's like, yeah, sometimes that might be the best solution for your current constraints and you can revisit it later. But yep. technically right now, like it works and it's not causing a problem. Yeah. Um, you know, the only problem it might cause is like in your, like in your Google Analytics or something, you might be wondering, it's like, why are we getting so many 404s on user profile pages? Do we have some broken links somewhere? Yeah. But there are ways to work around that too, you know, with specific referrers and stuff like that. Referrals. Yeah. So I think we have time for like one more form hack if you have one. If, if I have one? Yeah. Let's think. If you don't have one, I think that's okay. I think we could wrap up. I don't have one off the top of my head. I feel like I came in super cold to this. <laughs> oh, yeah. For people listening, I, I think it's important <laughs> for you to know. Um, we had a, a, a scheduling mix up. Um, and so we didn't have the the guest that we were planning to have today. So Divi and I decided like, well, we still want to do an episode. Let's make something up. And, we, you know, it's something Divi is really passionate about and something that, you know, I, I work a lot on is like forms. And, uh, you know, we started off talking about form uh, input masking. Mm-hmm. And then the conversation as, because as, you were here, if you've made it this far, it, you were there. 
it kind of evolved and we talked about a bunch of other different form tricks. So that's probably what this episode will be titled. Yes. Also, I just wanted to make a plug. So there's, there's a book called Form Design Patterns on Smashing Magazine. Um, and it's, it's, it's more taking the approach of building forms from a UX angle. So it goes through different use cases of how to build forms, like whether it's a registration form, a checkout form, a login, um, or filter, so on. But it goes over things to think about as you're building a form, just like from a usability and accessibility perspective, which I think is really useful because like implementation details aside, you ultimately have to build a form that is usable from a user perspective. And so um, there's lots of things to consider. Like, for example, one of the, the tricks, it's not really a trick, but one of the things that is noted in the book is the idea of where to put your label of your input and the success of where that label is and the correlation of that with user users finishing a form or user satisfaction overall. And so like the trick essentially is that instead of putting labels like to the right or to the left, you should put it to the top, like right on top of and to the right of your input. So it's like name and then it shows you the input. I've also heard like mixed feedback on whether or not it is good to, there are certain forms where like there's an input box and instead of having a label, the label is in the input itself as a placeholder. Oh, and then you click on it and, and then, then you it click moves. on it and then it moves. Yeah. And I've heard both sides of the argument. Where yeah. People have said it's great because then you can save space and it's like a nice animation. And I've heard the other side, which is like, it's really annoying because things are constantly moving as you're filling a page. Because there's always yeah. like, the reflow that happens. I've seen this argument happen. Yeah. Um, what I recommend in these cases is if people really feel strongly about it, like try both of them out. Like this is a great opportunity to A-B test. A-B test. And if it's something like a form and you're, you're thinking about optimizations like this, then it's probably some kind of, you know, sign up form or, or something else where like retention is really important and you're trying to make things easier for people. Yeah. So like... If, if that's the case, if it is actually important, A-B test it, and then you'll know for your users. Uh, and I've seen, I, I've, I've seen it come out like both ways. Yeah. There's lots of people who talk about the optimal design of a form, but I think usually with forms, it's dependent on the use case. And like A-B testing is the best way to do that because every form is different, even though like it might be the same type. So it's like, yeah, it's a checkout form. Checkout forms on one page might not be the same on another. And so there's different tricks that you might want to try that might work for you and not for other people. So Cool. Actually, there's, there's one more thing that I think I want to mention, and maybe more than one more thing. So this is something that uh, isn't necessarily specific to Vue, but it's something I use all the time. And that's when you want to run some client-side validations on submit, mm-hmm. uh, on a form, you can uh, add a Vion listener submit.prevent to prevent oh, default. Yes. Yep. And that way, when the form submits, it won't actually submit. And instead, you're catching when the submit happens, and then you can run those validations. And if they pass, then you can submit the form. Otherwise, you can show yep. the client validations. Yeah. Or you can you know, run, you know, hit some of those endpoints you know, to do specific validations. Yes, that's a good thing to note, actually. Um, I, I always forget to mention that when I talk about forms as well. Because I find that the default submit uh, isn't as 
like I, I like the fine grain control of doing submit.prevent and having my own submit event so I can use Axios or whatever I want to use to do that specific post. And then I can handle errors as they come through rather than have the form do its own thing, like doing like relying on HTML to do its own error validation, which can be a bit tricky sometimes. Yeah. Do, do you ever use built-in HTML validations? For some, yeah. So like, for instance, if I'm... For like required, the required attribute? Do you ever use that? Oh, I haven't used required. I've used max limit before or max length. Mm-hmm. So like, I want a specific input to only have a length of this. So if it's a zip code, a zip code is always five digits. Um, Got it. Yes. Yes, it's five digits. For, for, those, for those listening at home... Uh, on the video, <laughs> Divya adjusted one, two, three, four, five on her fingers <laughs> to count the digits in a zip code. I'm not from, like, okay, I've lived in the U.S. long enough that I should know this by uh, now. You should know numbers? Did they not have numbers in Singapore? No, because zip codes are different. So oh, oh like, zip codes, yeah. zip codes. So yeah, like, I mean, they don't okay. call it zip codes, they call it postal codes, but like the postal codes in Singapore. Oh, I was just making fun of you for typing, your fing- for counting on your fingers. <laughs> Even though I do it too. Sometimes when I'm really tired, honestly, like even if I need to do like six plus three, I'll do like six, seven, eight, nine, and I'll count on my fingers. It's like, okay, fine. Yeah. And then I catch myself and I think like, come on, Chris, you can do this in your head. You don't need your fingers. You're a big boy now. (laughs) I'm not embarrassed. I use my fingers. (laughs) Never my toes, but usually my fingers. Um, Well, I never count that high. (laughs) No, I count that. If I need my toes, I'm bringing out a calculator. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I use my hand to like do the, there's like the trick for the, the months, the number of days in the month. Oh yeah. I, I always, I always forget that trick though. Yeah. And also I, I never need it. I have a calendar. Oh, just know. Oh, uh, okay. I usually, like when I'm, yeah, that's fair. Like when I'm scheduling something, I just bring up my calendar and my calendar automatically knows what days are in what month. Yeah. But sometimes like there's some, yeah, that, that's a fair argument. I think usually like sometimes I just need to know if like on the fly, if February or if March, for example, has an extra day or not. Because I'm like, no. wait, today's the 30th. Does it mean tomorrow's April 1st? And I'm like, no, silly. There is March 31st. Um, no, f- because Far more often, I, I find myself needing to know like the 13th. Is that a Wednesday? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I want to know a I trick know for that. that though, I, yeah. bet there is a, I bet there's a trick for that, but I just don't. I do know that like... Well, it changes every, every year. year. It, it moves one down every year. So like if your birthday was in Saturday, it will be Sunday. And then if it was Monday, it will be Tuesday. So it just moves one down. I've been alive for 32 years and I've never noticed that. That it moves one down? Yeah. Yeah, it moves one down. Never noticed that. So yeah, that's why... Because ViewConf uh, last year was 26, 27, 28. And then this year it's 25, 26, 27. Because... It's usually Monday through Wednesday, and so the dates. And so eventually, it'll be the previous year. Like, we'll have to have two ViewConfs in a single year, or like it'll start going back in time. It's like what? we've already had that ViewConf, actually. Wait, what? Because it keeps going back in time. Wait, oh, because it keeps moving forward. My so joke didn't make sense. We don't need to. We don't need to analyze it. But let's move on. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them 
And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash view. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. We should probably wrap up. Should we do our picks? Yeah, we can do picks. Do you want to do picks? Yeah, I, I would love to. Are you asking me to go first? Yes. <laughs> okay. My first pick is maybe a, a game that I've been playing a little bit of lately called Stardew Valley, which is just a very slow, meditative, sort of like farming simulator and community building game, you know, where you just like going and I like remember people's birthdays, which I never do in real life. And then I, I give people like little gifts that I research and I figure out like, oh, what would they really love? And I give them something that they would love in their birthday. And then I get friendship points. That's cute. And then the, the better friends that I get with people, like the, the more I get to know them, the more of their character, uh, the more their character like evolves, which is really cool. And then I also get to sort of in a relaxed way, just like build crops, manage yeah. a farm, name my animals and, you know, pet them and milk them. And I have a cat um, named MacGyver, both in real life and on my farm. Oh, that's cute. Do they share personalities? No. Oh. Well. MacGyver in real life is much more ornery and, and much more whiny. I can see why, especially in the winter, because like he wants to go outside, but he's mad at us because we made it cold. Did you say ornery? Ornery, yeah. Ornery. What is ornery? Um... He's like uh, sort of mischievous. Ah, and... Okay, got it. Yeah, I, I somehow like thought with an H and I was like, that's not a word. Okay, I, I know now. What sort you... of like mischievous and irritable maybe? I yes, don't know. Ir- irritable, irritable is or- ornery. But I, I, I associate with mischievousness too. But anyway, another pick of mine is, this is another like mental health one. When you're having a hard time, talk to people in your life. Uh, it doesn't have to be professionally, but... Talk to someone because when you're feeling when you're feeling very alone and you're going through difficult life stuff, as we all do sometimes, it can be tempting to like not want to like bother people. It's like oh, I don't want to bother people with my problems, and you know I don't want to. Um, yeah, you just you don't want to have to like you don't want people to feel like you know you're causing them a problem. But if you're feeling incredibly alone and you're hurting, like, there's there's not really a risk to reaching out and, and being vulnerable and, you know, sharing. Because oftentimes, like, it, it makes your relationship stronger, actually. And, and people feel more comfortable being vulnerable to you if you're vulnerable to them. Um, but also, like, if you just bottle up and don't talk to people because, like, you're afraid of, you know, causing them a problem, then your relationship is going to deteriorate anyway. You, you'll be losing friendship points every day that you avoid people. <laughs> Real friendship points which matter more than Stardew Valley friendship points. And that's it. That's my mental health pick. That's a good one, um, that last pick. My pick is a book that I started reading. I'm really late to the party, but I started reading The Book Thief, and it's wonderful. I don't read a lot of genres outside of science fiction. I tend to stick within science fiction just because I really read that genre a lot. And I guess maybe fantasy because it tends to be within the same genre science fiction for some weird reason. But I started reading The Book Thief and it's, it's, one, it's wonderful. It's, it's such a, one, like, a heartwarming story. Um, 
And yeah, and I've, I've really been enjoying it. My first book of 2019. And my second pick is this bike light that I have called Fortified Bike Light. Well, it's by a company called Fortified Bikes. And the nice thing about these bike lights is that they are anti-theft. So they have a specific screw that you need a specific screwdriver to take off your bike, which is nice so that you don't have to take off. Because usually if, you're, if you don't ride bikes, this will not make sense. But if you ride bikes, bike light theft is pretty common where people just take the lights off of your bike because when you park a bike outside, like your parts are exposed to everything and people tend to steal bike parts. And so this specific light is fixed onto your bike and no one can remove it but you or anyone else with fortified bike lights because you need that screwdriver. Um, And so it's pretty nice because of that purpose and it's like usb chargeable so it's like an exclusive thieves guild yeah <laughs> listen um, if you want to if you want to steal these you'll you'll need, you'll need to become you a member find, yourself you have to find other people who use this specific bike line. find out where they park their bikes and then anyway it's really great it's usb chargeable like i have two different battery packs it comes in you can buy them separately And so you can charge them and then swap them out as they need. The one issue I would say off the bat is that in order to activate the light, you have to press front of the light, is that the face? Um, Yeah, sure. The problem with that is that if another bike is parked next to yours and accidentally presses on the face of your light, the battery drains really fast. Oh no. Because it turns on the light and like most people don't know how to turn off a bike light or they don't care to figure it out. Or maybe they'll think it's like a, a motion sensor and it'll just turn off by itself. Maybe, yeah. I mean, there have been times where I've passed by a bike, seen the bike light on, and then tried to turn it off because I feel bad for whoever's bike that was. Ah, you're a good person, Divya. Yeah, but I never, I'm usually not successful. Unless it's very straightforward, in which case, if it's like a switch, I'll just be like, all right, I'll turn this off. You just like punch it in the face a few times. And if that doesn't work, you just move on. Yeah. I mean, usually I'm like, is there a switch? Is there like something? And then if there isn't, I'll like walk away because I don't want people to think I'm stealing a bike, even though it's, I don't look like the kind who would steal bikes. Unfortunately, people profile. I don't fit that profile, thankfully, but yeah. Do you th- what do you think it is? Do you think you're just too short? Why'd you got to bring that up? <laughs> no, it's because- She it doesn't is- even look like she could get on this bike. <laughs> she couldn't even reach the pedals. <laughs> How would she do this? I'm not that she, she, She's fine. No, oh, come on. I was actually going. For- I think there would be a lot of bikes where you wouldn't be able to reach the pedals. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, no, I was more going for, I just look very, I just look like I wouldn't do that. Like I look very basic, normal, I guess. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it works in my favor, so I'll, I'll take it. But yeah, that's all the picks I have for today. I'm glad you appear unassuming. Yes. Uh, she is devious, though. Watch out for her, and she will steal your bike light. Uh, she has the special screwdriver. <laughs> Be Beware. All right. And with that, let's wrap up the show. It's been wonderful chatting with you, Chris. Good talking and, to you, too. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, enjoy the view. Bye, everybody. The end. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.